0: Well hello and welcome back folks. You are in for a treat today. Today I sat down with Michael Knowles for an interview. Uh, He uh, is the host of The Michael Knowles Show over at The Daily Wire. And uh, he's also an author uh, as well as a uh, public speaker, and uh, he's been featured on Fox and a bunch of other different stuff. He's a a political and social commentator, but he's been outspoken about his Christian faith, and so I was excited to do an interview with him about his uh, Christian faith in general and his uh, uh, Catholic faith uh, in particular. I myself grew up Protestant, so I have plenty of uh, questions. Uh, to get uh, his take on uh, some different topics uh, concerning Catholicism. And uh, it was very informative. I learned a lot. Um, I have a lot of mischaracterizations of Catholicism. And so um, it was good to uh, speak to Michael and and have him clarify some things for me. I learned a lot myself, so I hope uh, you will as well. Now, if you want to listen to the bonus segment of the show, uh, Five More Minutes with Michael Knowles, you'll have to follow the Patreon uh, link in the description below and become a supporter of the show. And not only will you get access to that bonus segment uh, where I ask Michael about uh, future political careers as well as uh, future books that he uh, may be writing, Um, But you'll also get access to uh, past bonus segments with other interviewees, as well as access to all of our future bonus segments with future interviewees. So uh, a lot of exclusive content over there. Be sure to become a supporter of the show. Guys, enjoy the episode. In today's modern scientific era, how could you possibly still believe in God? And, And the resurrection, people do not rise from the dead. And don't even start to tell me that you think the Bible is God's word. If you've ever heard questions like these, or if you've ever had doubts about your faith, this is Help Me Believe, where each week we aim to answer a tough question about Christianity. Our aim is to strengthen the believer and answer the critic. Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, uh, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited to introduce my special guest to you today. He uh, is the host of The Michael Knowles Show at The Daily Wire. He's the author of the completely blank book, uh, Reasons to Vote for Democrats. And of course, he is Ben Shapiro's uh, favorite employee, ladies and gentlemen the michael Knowles. michael how are you doing today
1: i'm doing well thank you for having me
0: yeah thanks so much man i appreciate you coming on and taking time out of your schedule to do this uh I know that you're a political and social commentator for the most part, but uh, you've been very outspoken about uh, your Christian faith. And so I'm excited to have you on to uh, ask you some questions about your Christian faith uh, in general, as well as your Catholic faith in particular. But before we get to the questions, uh, if you don't mind introducing yourself uh, to my audience who uh, may or may not be uh, familiar with yourself.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm glad that we can talk about this because... On my show, I'm Michael Knowles, I host the Michael Knowles Show at The Daily Wire, and we have such a heavy political focus, and I forget who first said it, it's now become a cliche almost, to say that all political problems are theological problems, and when I find myself in my free time or when I'm reading, I'm almost always reading theology or philosophy or history of the church, and uh, this is, I think, most of what people really want to talk about. When the mailbag comes in, I get... At least 50% of the questions are about faith because as uh, St. Andrew Breitbart said, the patron of Hollywood conservatives, (laughs) politics is downstream of culture and culture is downstream of religion. Culture and cult are related they're uh, etymologically related and what a culture worships will define that culture. So you can institute all the political reforms in the world that you want. It won't make one iota of difference in the long run if you don't write the religious questions. And we now have a generation, the generation of the nuns, the not N-U-N-S, right. but N-O-N-E-S. and the, an important
0: distinction,
1: yeah. a very important <laughs> distinction. Maybe there's some overlap, I'm not sure. But the, these are are people who were raised basically without a faith tradition, without any sense. Forget orthodoxy. They weren't even raised with heterodoxy. They were raised maybe in the spiritual but not religious realm. And so millennials, uncoincidentally, are desperate for meaning. They are more than other generations searching for meaning in their professional lives, in their daily lives. And the reason is they don't have a sense of meaning. They're so robbed of that. And... Uh this is a, gener- a uniquely a singularly generational problem and so i think it's why people are writing in even to political shows to ask about god and about faith and where our our ideas and our faith come from and so that's why it's so wonderful to have shows like this where we can talk about apologetics and philosophy and theology and i can't wait now when i get questions in the mailbag i'll point them over here to go hear the answers
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i appreciate that but uh you know uh I think you hit the nail on the head when um, kind of along the lines of, you know, political philosophy seems to be the tip of the iceberg. I've heard the expression put, but uh, underneath, you know, you got philosophy and religion and stuff like that that drive those conversations, but oftentimes are neglected, uh, at least in our our current climate and uh, conversations that people are having today. But uh, speaking of young people... Uh, a big problem that a lot of young people have is that they, you know, I'm sure I'm sure you're familiar with the statistics. Uh, they seem to go off to college, and then the, the more educated they become, they seem to uh, fall away from their faith. I know those numbers can be skewed because a lot of people come back to their faith afterwards, but uh, nonetheless, there does seem to be uh, a problem with that. And so, uh, I know you're an educated man. Uh, you uh, you went to, uh, you graduated from from Yale, actually. Is that correct?
1: That's right, yeah i was a yep. I was a, I was in that den of atheism and debauchery at yeah. Yale University
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, and you know that's kind of why i, I do this uh, ministry, help me believe to try to reach uh, students who have doubts like that at uh, especially those who have uh, gone up to university and are having their or their faith challenge but uh, you you seem to fly in in the in the face of these statistics statistics, excuse me. Um, because it, and you went off to not only university but Yale, and, and you seem to have uh, come out with your with your faith still intact. And so, what what what's kind of the secret there, or what would you recommend to the next generation who's going off to university and having their faith challenged?
1: I actually didn't come out with my faith intact. I came out with a different faith because I went in with atheism. That was my faith really? going into Yale. Oh yes, I, okay. I I was a little precocious as a kid, so I had my teenage. Uh, atheist rebellion a little early. Basically, by the time I was confirmed in the Catholic Church at age 13, I would have described myself as an atheist. This was during that period of time where there was that very popular publishing movement, the New Atheists, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris. And for a 13-year-old, their arguments are fairly compelling. I don't think their arguments are very compelling for anyone who thinks with greater depth than a 13-year-old, but 13 is right about the age. And also because their frivolous arguments appeal to the intellectual hubris of a 13-year-old and the intellectual depth. So I had this atheism or agnosticism or some vacillation between the two, and I get to Yale, and everybody there is an atheist. Very smart people, generally speaking, some extraordinarily smart people. Most people are atheists or agnostic. Except for the smartest people. And this is why I'm skeptical of these statistics. You know, there are lies, damned lies, and statistics. Because one thing I noticed at Yale is that the very smartest people were Christian. Maybe some Orthodox Jews as well. And I've noticed a lot of them were even leaning toward Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, these really long-standing Christian traditions, what what seemed to me at the time the least defensible of the Christian traditions from my rationalist and atheistic standpoint. And so I thought that was a little curious. You're at this place, all these very smart people, they're all atheists, and yet the creme de la creme uh, were... Christian, specifically. And so I kind of thought about that for a little bit. And one thing that brought me back to the faith during my time in college was the modal ontological argument for God, the formulation of St. Anselm of Canterbury's argument done by Alvin Plantinga, that Calvinist philosopher at Notre Dame. And uh, so that that, uh, got me thinking, because that argument, which convinces virtually nobody, started to convince me, the argument being, uh, it's not impossible that God exists, therefore God exists. <laughs> right. I skipped a couple steps, but that's basically the argument. And I found mm-hmm. the argument so whimsical, uh, and and I was really compelled by it. And then I started exploring other arguments, the Thomistic arguments for God, the cosmological argument, all of the very popular arguments for God. At that point, a missionary, he gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I started to devour Lewis. I would read Chesterton. Uh, I would read uh, Owen Barfield, Hilaire Belloc, that whole group of thinkers, the inkling type people. And I I started to understand this profound intellectual tradition. And uh, I realized there weren't really any arguments for atheism. The closest argument for atheism was the problem of pain and evil and suffering. And really, when you ran through that one, that became an argument for God too. It was at this point... And really only at this point that I would say that I had a real sense of the numinous or of the religious experience. And all of that was happening during college, but it was really about 23 years old or after college that all of that hit, those coincidences, that providence, uh, really all coalesced together and and, uh, gave me... I guess the way you would describe it is that things happen slowly and then all at once. And then they, they happened slowly, and then they happened all at once at about 23. But I think it was my experience in college, uh, surrounded by atheism, that really uh, pushed me further down that path and faster down that path. You know, when you're in an environment where you have to or constantly challenge beliefs, you think, all of these people, I think they're not quite right, but why? I have a contrarian sort of disposition. Why are they? are they wrong? I can't quite tell. It really deepens your belief and your thought, and ultimately, in in my case at least, led me to faith.
0: Oh, well, that's uh, that's actually really interesting. I didn't know that uh, you went into the university as an atheist like that and then actually came out uh, back uh, uh, as a Christian. So that's uh, that's very interesting for sure. So you, you mentioned the uh, the problem of evil, or the problem of suffering. And so uh, this is a big uh, apologetic question for a lot of people. It causes a lot of people to have doubt. It's probably uh, the number one um, um, cause of doubt uh, for Christians. So uh, how do you tackle that question? Kind of uh, what's the right way to answer that?
1: Well, uh uh, I guess there are a few ways to enter into the question. Why is there evil in the world? The I'll, I'll just use uh, John Milton's example of yeah. it. It's uh, b- because of freedom. So because we have freedom, we can rebel against God. Uh, Satan rebels against God, and in Milton's vision of it, uh, the, the deep narcissism of Satan produces sin, uh, as, as if by mitosis, and then there is a perverse incestual relation between Satan and sin, and this produces death. And then, of course, you have in the garden, in Paradise Lost, Adam uh, chooses to disobey God, chooses, uses his freedom, and abuses his freedom, and this produces, by necessary consequence, uh, sin and death, which then pervade the world, and we read all about this in Romans and elsewhere. Uh, In A Just World, in a perfectly just world, that must happen. You you must have a consequence for the abuse of your free will. Mm -hmm. Now, if we are living in the greatest possible world, which is another argument for God by the way, then what that must mean is that the world as we have it, with free will, incarnation, and atonement is the greatest possible world. And if that is the case, then there must be some transcendence of Uh, sin and death and evil and suffering. There must be some conquest of that. And so I, I make it down this path, this logical path, and only at that point does it occur to me that this is the story of Christianity. The conquest of death on the cross. This is the greatest story ever told, uh, the greatest myth ever created. So so great because it's true. It's the true myth. And uh, it's it's funny because I'm sure a person who (laughs) struggled less with the uh, intellectual moorings of their faith would have said, listen, dummy, that's the whole story of Christianity, is the conquest of death and sin. But for some of us, it takes a little bit longer to arrive there only to come right back to the very beginning and uh, see the beauty of the faith.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that's a, that's a good way of, of, uh, of putting things. Um, another uh, a common... Um uh, argument against God that you see today, at least by uh, popular atheists, as you, were, as you were mentioning, is is this idea that science and faith are at odds with one another, or that science has, uh, well, I doubt that uh, in, in any serious atheist would say that science has disproved God, uh, but nonetheless, um, there does seem to be uh, this idea that science and God are at, at odds with one another. How do you kind of uh, tackle that subject?
1: Well, I have to go a step further and even question your use of the phrase, a serious atheist. I don't know that we've had a serious atheist <laughs> Since Bertrand Russell, and it's been a right. little while since he walked the earth. These Fair modern right. people are not terribly serious. I mean, some of them are journalists, like Sam Harris has a podcast. I mean, I have a podcast too. I just don't pretend to be, uh, you know, a great theologian. I'm a guy who talks to a camera, which is basically what Sam Harris is, and he pretends that he's the the greatest uh, theolo- theologian, you know, since Thomas Aquinas, greater than Thomas Aquinas. Uh, right. uh, the, the question of science, I guess all of those guys use science as an example. It's just so historically illiterate. Uh, They must not have ever heard of Father George Lemaitre, the Catholic priest who discovered the Big Bang. They must not have heard of the Catholic who discovered the genetic code. They must not have ever heard of Isaac Newton, the founder of our modern scientific era who was a devout Christian who spent his entire life uh, translating scripture and interpreting scripture. Maybe they've never heard of uh, Blaise Pascal, probably the greatest genius of the modern era. He invented the calculator uh, who was devout, who kept an inscription of his faith in his jacket pocket and who famously came up with Pascal's wager in the Pensee. Uh, I mean, the list could go on and on and on. Maybe they've never heard of Cardinal Baronius, who said that scripture tells us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. All of the... Uh, for all intents and purposes, the only scientific discoveries that we have ever made in history have been made by religious people and specifically Christians. Uh, the, the vast majority. And uh, people who try to point to science as though it is uh, contradicting faith uh, are they're that precocious 13-year-old who read half of a blog post one time and they're talking about things about which they know nothing fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom a little humility goes a long way but they don't have that they they don't even know enough to know what they don't know it reminds me of donald rumsfeld's famous distinction between known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. I think that they they fall firmly in the latter category because, of course, our scientific era was created by the church. It was created by the church and and specifically by clergy, by churchmen. Uh, Now, what this has been perverted into is uh, scientism, a, a totalizing religion which uh, ignores, just as its premise, metaphysical reality. It ignores the realm of the ethical or the moral or the transcendent or the divine or the metaphysical. And it, it only does so convincingly uh, uh, conveniently rather. So it will accept metaphysical reality when it relies on, say, mathematical axioms, the laws of mathematics, the laws of physics. Then it will rely on, metaphysical reality, but it will ignore metaphysical reality when we discuss the the very grounding of reality, the very grounding then of the moral law, the very uh, grounding of ourselves uh, w- when discussing the unmoved mover, when discussing arguments from contingency. Then they play dumb, and the people who fall into that silly scientific materialism and scientism are playing dumb as well. Maybe they're not just playing it.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I kind of want to switch gears here on you, if you don't mind. I know I'm kind of uh, throwing topics out at you, kind of rapid fire. But um, I don't want to make another assumption real quick, so let me just double check. So it sounds like you uh, grew up in a, in a Catholic home and then uh, went into university as an atheist and then come back out as, uh, as a Catholic again, is that correct?
1: Yes. So I, I was uh, baptized as a baby, you know, I was a cradle Catholic, and my family went through spurts. So some day, weeks we would go to church every week. Excuse me. Sometimes we were more that Christ, uh, Christmas and Easter Catholic. Yeah, you go to church twice a year. Sometimes C. E. that's right, a C.E. Catholic. Sometimes yeah. we would were a little bit more cafeteria Catholic. So you accept. These teachings of the church, but you reject these teachings, and what's the rhyme or reason? Well, I couldn't tell you. People get busy. People fall away from the faith. When I look back at it, I'm looking back at it as the totality of my life. But you have to remember, we're talking about a period of five or ten years. People change. Certainly, I did, and uh, so it, it is interesting to see that ebb and flow. Then, after college, I became convinced that God exists. And then when you're convinced that God exists, you have to grapple with the person of Christ. You have to grapple with the the fact of Christ and who is Christ and and is he who he says he is or is he a liar or is he a lunatic or is he a legend? And so uh, you have to deal with history. You have to read scripture. You have to read sources outside of scripture. You have to read the the church fathers. And uh, then I became convinced of that Christ is who he says he is, and I became convinced of the Incarnation. Then I became convinced of the Resurrection. And then I became convinced that the Catholic Church is the Catholic Church, that it is the one true Church. Uh, That happened over a period of time, and uh, my faith has only deepened throughout that period of time. But it gave me a good perspective because I began my... Intellectual consideration of Christianity with a Calvinist philosopher at Notre Dame. I yeah. listened to guys like Tim Keller and other uh, Protestant uh, teachers and preachers of various stripes, and uh, ended up Catholic. But I, I did go through a wow. pretty long, uh, a pretty long time away, and uh, nice. Uh, uh, buffet of varieties of christian thought before <laughs> i got there it. Yeah.
0: yeah for the for the most part it seems that we're all in agreement uh, around uh, mere christianity to uh, use the term uh, but i do kind of want to segue into uh, something more specific your catholic faith so i grew up in a uh, a protestant church uh, southern baptist to be sp- specific and so over the years i've i've heard plenty of uh, cliches uh, Charted out by uh, Protestants about Catholicism, but like yourself, as I'm very contrarian, as you said, and uh, doubted, you know, with the truth of uh, these cliches that were put forward. But um, I, you know, I, would, I would just rather hear it from a Catholic themselves what they believe than what a Protestant says a Catholic believes. Uh, sort of, sort of like that, and so. Uh, I'm sure there's plenty of mischaracterizations that Protestants make about Catholics. And I'm sure you've heard them uh, before. So, what are what are some popular mischaracterizations that you hear, and uh, how do you respond to them?
1: Well, I've heard them all, and I right. you know I, I regularly attend a Bible study, which is mostly Protestant. So occasionally I hear them there as well, or even yeah. you know, they, and often people don't mean them in a malicious way. They right. it, you know it's it I believe it was uh, Mark Twain who said. It's uh, not what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we know for sure that just ain't so. And so one that is always uh, brought up is worshiping Mary and the saints. Why do Catholics worship Mary? And of course, we don't. Catholics don't worship Mary. We don't worship anyone but God. Never have, never will. Uh, Catholics do, of course, venerate Mary and the saints. We pray to Mary. And uh, you say, well, why do you venerate Mary? That seems like idolatry. And the answer, why do you venerate Mary, is simple: because she's the mother of God. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, such a significant moment in the history of salvation comes, uh, and is all too often overlooked when we're in the Christmas season, which is, as Pope Benedict writes beautifully, you have the angel come down the mountain and say to Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Do not be afraid. Uh, uh, you, you will bear a child, you will conceive a child. And she says, well, how is that possible? I know no man. And the angel says, no, it's going to happen, don't worry. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and then, as Pope Benedict describes it, all of the heavens hold their breath and Mary assents. She said, I am the Lord's servant, his will be done. And so you see this beautiful interplay of grace and will Mary is there assenting to the will of God in a total reversal of what Eve did. Mary is the new Eve. Christ is the new Adam. Uh, This this beautiful moment of of grace and will, and certain uh, traditions have emphasized grace to the exclusion of will. Some heresies, such as the Pelagian heresy, for instance, have emphasized will to the exclusion of grace. Uh, But, of course, the reality is what Cardinal Newman would have called the via media, this, this beautiful balancing act. And uh, it's funny with Cardinal Newman, because when he was writing about that, he was writing about the Church of England, and then he changed his mind and became a Catholic priest and ultimately a cardinal. So yeah. we pray to Mary. Then they'll say, well, why are you praying to... Okay, she's the mother of God, that's fine. But why do you pray to anyone at all other than God? I say, do you ever pray for people? I say, well, sure. I say, do you ever ask other people for prayers? What does it mean to pray? To pray is to ask. That's what the word means. Uh, if you pray to, if you say, hey, Bob is really sick. My husband Bob is really sick. He's in the hospital. Can you pray for him? Right. Well, then you are praying that someone pray for you. You're doing exactly the same thing. They say, well, that's fine. I'm, I'm doing that to living people. Not, well, I'm doing that to living people too. I'm doing that to Mary and I'm doing that to the saints. The definition of a saint is someone who is alive. Who, is, who, is, who, is, who has eternal life. As a matter of fact, the saints are the only people that we know for sure are alive at all. And, and then you say, well, where do you see it in Scripture? And there are a great many things that, that we know to be true that are not in Scripture. The word Trinity never appears in Scripture, and yet we know the triune God. But you see it in Revelation, which is that uh, the saints in heaven are holding their pots full of the prayers of the saints. Who on earth would the saints be praying for They're not praying for the other saints. They're all doing very well. They're they're praying for us. They're praying for us, and we can pray to them. I think this is one area that is uh, pretty confused, and I have great sympathy. I understand why people are confused by it. But one thing that is very important to remember, I think it was Dr. Johnson who pointed this out, is that all shallows are clear. As Father George Rutler in New York points out, shallow thinking is clear. Profound yeah. things are deep and murky, and the other analogy is that when people are looking strictly using their own faculties of reason, no interpretive scheme, no historical context, no philosophical or theological context, just interpreting scripture in at their preferred translation as it is, it is like looking down a deep, dark well. And what you will see right on the surface is your own reflection looking back at you, but when you have an interpretive scheme, when you, have, when you take in context and you are open to questions, then that will, uh, that will deepen. And, and to use Russell Kirk's example, Russell Kirk, the author of The Conservative Mind, shifting back a little bit to politics, he, sure. he describes that there are two kinds of reformers. There is the leftist reformer, the radical Jacobin reformer who looks at some institution or some ritual or or some habit and says, is it true? And then there is the more intelligent reformer who looks and says, what does it mean? What is the purpose? G.K. Chesterton does this in his example of the fence. One reformer sees a fence in the middle of the road, has no idea why it's there. He says, we're going to tear that fence down. The the intelligent reformer comes up and says, no, you may not. Go away, figure out why the fence is there. Then, when you can tell me why the fence is there, then perhaps I will allow you to tear it down. I, I think that is uh, the the thing that perpetuates a lot of confusion, and the the antidote to that is is fear of the Lord, is is an intellectual humility and awe and wonder and curiosity.
0: Uh, yeah, I think you're exactly right. Um... The 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 question of uh, praying to the saints or praying to Mary is definitely uh, one that I've I've heard uh, myself as a Protestant uh, uh, against Catholics like that, and so uh, that's clarifying to hear you uh, explain uh, what that belief actually is. Um, but probably at least in my context, the number one uh, mischaracterization, or what definitely what you would call a mischaracterization, is is that Catholicism is a religion of works, and that Protestantism is is more of a religion of uh, faith or, or grace or however you want to word that uh, how do you respond uh, to this um, what you would call mischaracterization
1: yep. well the catholic church condemned the pelagian heresy a very long time ago so i don't i think it would be hard for the church to be clearer that uh, it is not a religion solely of works i wonder what that is of course james writes that faith without works is dead and yep. the question i mean you see mary assenting to the uh, angel at the at the Annunciation. would that be considered a work? I don't know. What is my faith? What is the stuff of my faith? Is there? Is that a work? Does it look like a work? My, my the own intellectual churning is going on in my brain. My speech. My my accessing of meaningful speech. Is that a work? Uh, work becomes a little uh, murkier along the edges. The uh, Christ tells the apostles to go. Make disciples of all of the nations. Is that a work, or they, is that a religion of works that they're engaging in? Of course not. You judge the tree by its fruit, and our faith, which is which gives life, which has eternal life to it, spurs one to certain actions, to to charity. It spurs one to going out and make disciples of all nations. Uh, that's that's a wonderful thing. I I, I, I because i'm unfamiliar with much of the uh, protestant opinion of catholicism i don't really maybe you can clarify for me i don't really understand what they would point to as some particular works based uh, heresy
0: um i i probably couldn't point to a uh, particular instance uh, uh, either but uh, uh, the word is is kind of lost on me right now but the 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 the, the it's the uh Protestants would point to the the Catholic belief of uh, again the word is is uh, is amiss on me, but it's the idea that uh, you you pay money to the church and then uh, they'll for the forgiveness of sins. Indulgences, so, the, the selling of indulgences. indulgences. Yes, this, is, of indulgences. this this was used. Mean, I think this is what they would point to. I that, thought. That's a good
1: example. So the sale of indulgences was never permitted by the church. That never happened. Write that away with the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny. However, there was a. A corruption that had crept in in the 16th century that Martin Luther quite rightly took issue with, which is that an indulgence is a remittance for the temporal effects of sin. It is not getting out of purgatory early. It is not by your way into heaven. It was not by your family into heaven. It never was that at all. Uh, but it was a, a temporal and is, remains, temporal remittance. Uh, or remittance, rather, for the temporal effects of sin. And one way, one way among many, that you could receive an indulgence is by giving alms to the poor, which we all agree is a good work, giving alms to a charitable organization, to to a poorhouse, whatever. Now, you can see how abuses crept in. This is why at the Council of Trent, they outlawed and canceled any indulgences that involved a, a monetary transaction be it for a charitable organization or what, what have you. Uh, you can totally understand why abuses crept in, and a lot of corruption did creep in, and that's why it ended. But indulgences existed before that, and they existed after that as well. Now, another work that I, I actually have heard, uh, I've had a number of Protestants ask me about this, is is the liturgy, this particularly non or lesser less liturgical minded Protestants, which is that why do we get on our knees and get up and confess our sins to a priest and believe that Christ is really, believe as Martin Luther believed, that Christ is really present in the Eucharist? Why do we believe that? And that I think is a more substantial question. Uh, And the reason is that it must be true. The, uh, I I think the mistake that some people make is they prefer to think of themselves as mere abstractions, floating brains just in the ether. They're like, we don't have a body, like we don't live in time and space, but we do live in time and space. We have a unity of our our body and our souls. There is a fleshiness to us, and then there is, of course, the spiritual realm. And uh, as such, we require ritual. As such... The metaphysical world has to come in contact with the physical world if it is to be redeemed. And, of course, this comes into effect in the person of Christ. The divine word, the divine logic of the universe, becomes man in the Virgin Mary. And uh, you see the sacrament himself. in in that combination. This is what happens in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And what happens when we ignore this fact, when we ignore that our religion is not a religion of philosophy or poetry primarily, it is a religion of fact. The Gospels are not some beautiful folk song. The Gospels are journalism. They're talking about a real guy who lived in a real place at a real time, and he had real apostles who went to real places and really died. When we try to abstract that away from the real, real fleshiness of it, the, the tangibleness of it, the reality of it, then what we do is we turn it into just another nice story. Oh, Jesus was a good moral teacher, as some people say. This is just one nice story among many. But the reason that Christianity is the true faith is because it all really happened. And a reminder, a regular encounter between the metaphysical and the physical is a beautiful and necessary reminder of that factual union.
0: Well, well put. Uh, You've given me a lot to think about, for sure. Uh, I'm sure I have quite a a number of more mischaracterizations of Catholicism just from growing up uh, in a Protestant church. You know, this sort of thing happens. But uh, uh, I do appreciate you coming on. I appreciate uh, the stance you make uh, in the public square for your faith. And uh, uh, thanks so much for coming on uh, and uh, taking time out of your schedule. I know you got a busy schedule. So, yeah, again, I just really appreciate you
1: coming on and uh, doing this. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Well, thanks for tuning in, guys. I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. If so, be sure to hit the like button, become a, a sub- subscriber. If you want to watch the bonus segment, be sure to follow the Patreon link in the description below. And uh, go become a supporter of the show, and you'll get access to uh, not only this bonus segment, but past bonus segments as well as future bonus segments. Thanks so much uh, for joining us, and we'll see you next time.